Well, welcome to one and all to Journey to the Stage. This is Brian Frazier, and I hope you are doing well in your corner of the planet. And a big thank you to each of you for tuning in today. And today we have a very, very special guest that I'm really excited to get into our conversation with. Before we get started, if you do enjoy conversations like this, share this with your friends. Your kindness is what helps this podcast to grow. So telling your friends, giving ratings or reviews, those types of things go a long, long way to helping others find us. So today we are very, very honored to have Malcolm Geit with us. Malcolm is a singer-songwriter. He is a poet. He is a priest. He is a man of words, of letters. He is a professor. He has done so much. He's got quite an extensive background that we're going to have some fun looking into and investigating together today. So it is my pleasure to welcome Malcolm Guy to Journey to the Stage. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you and, and your listeners, wherever they may be. I think we have an audience that uh, last count is on uh, in over 130 countries. So it's a growing audience, it's, and I'm yeah. really, really grateful it's for that. It's an astonishing thing, really, that we can do this, that we can speak across the world like this. It's something to be grateful for. And here I am in Central California, you know, and you're halfway around the world there. But we have a conversation that could reach really just about anywhere on, on the planet, except China. I've noticed I have no listeners in China. I'm in a little medieval town in North Norfolk called North Walsham, which has uh, been here since Anglo-Saxon times and had its little market since 1217 and its church since the 13th century. So not much changes around here. I love that. And it's so interesting. I've not been to England yet, but ever since I was a very small child, I have wanted to go to England. One of these days... Lord willing, I will get there. My wife studied a semester there in Sheffield, but I'm I'm hoping to go back as a history major. Being around such old places, old things, is something that is very, very uh, stimulating to me. So hopefully, one of these days, I will get back there. Well, I hope we make it over sometime. Yeah, so we've got we've got a lot of ground to cover, and again, I'm so grateful that you're with me. And maybe let's start in, in the beginning a little bit. So maybe tell us where you come from, because that in and of itself is is quite an interesting story. You're you're English, but you you weren't born in England. Yes. This is always, where I come from is quite. A, I know it's quite. A, I mean, people think of me as very. I mean, I think of myself as you know essentially English, but um, even quintessentially English. But no, I come from many places. I was born in Nigeria in Ibadan in '57. Um, my father was a professor, an academic, teaching Greek and Latin, but also a Methodist local preacher. Um, so my first, I'm always, I'm called Malcolm now that I'm in England and Europe, as it were, but when I was a small boy in Africa, I was called Ayo, because my first name is Ayodeji, which is a Yoruba name that means uh, joy again, or the second joy, it's a traditional name for a second child. In fact, I had my first sort of 10 years in Africa there and in, in Zimbabwe, but we, my father was an academic, so we had the long leave each thing. We used to come back to England every year 
actually by sea. My father flew, but my mother and sister and I came by sea. So I have lots of memories of being on on ships at sea uh, as a child as well. Wow. Uh, then eventually my dad, um, in fact, then got a post in Canada at Hamilton at McMaster University. But back in sort of 71, he... He came to the conclusion that I was losing my British identity, which is very funny because I had I'd been almost everywhere except Britain. So he sent me to a boarding school <laughs> in England, um, you know, when I was about 13 or so. And um, that was, you know, uh, a bit traumatic at first, but I came to love English literature and I won a scholarship to, to Cambridge and went up to study English literature in in 77. And because I sort of did well there and loved the place and I, I did various other things, I but I have been in or around Cambridge, in the county of Cambridgeshire, more or less ever since, mm-hmm. either in role as a priest or then coming back as an academic and even as a high school teacher first, but it's always around there. So Cambridge has been, as it were, my orbit has always been close to Cambridge until um, I retired, we moved out of, Cambridge in 2021 and now live in Norfolk but I retired it was an early retirement I could still be there but as well as being an academic and a pastor I felt the vocation to poetry to writing and reciting poetry to trying to get a a substantial body of poetry out there was very important so I decided to kind of quit the day job as it were although I remain of course a priest you know and I'm often helping with churches on Sundays but in order to have time both for writing and for speaking because I found the number of invitations I had several of my books had sort of made some way an impact so I found the number of invitations to speak I had had increased and although I don't accept all of them I think there are some you know where it's important and it's worth flying over and um, also it's a great adventure I sometimes feel rather like sort of you know Bilbo upon whom a kind of Gandalf is called in that you know I didn't start this international travel and speaking and all that stuff until I or even for that matter you know doing poetry readings anywhere or even my musical things until I was until I was in my mid-50s you know (laughs) so uh, or early fifties, so I'm now in my in my mid sixties. Uh, so it's been quite an interesting and comparatively recent adventure. Well, that's wonderful. And you talked about some of the maybe the writing that really ignited you, ignited uh, your not only your imagination but your love for the written word. Where, where does that come from for you? That great love that you've developed that obviously would turn into as a uh, author. I think, well, in a sense, the love for the written word almost precedes my literacy. It, it, it's the experience of my mother, who was full of poetry, a wonderful Scotswoman, reciting poetry to me, and then, and then my father reading stories to me when I was very little. You know, the, the house was full of books. So I can hardly remember when it was that watching my father as he read, and sometimes he'd show me the books and move his finger on the page and learning the letters. I did formally learn at school, I suppose, but I almost knew before then... But I suppose when the first books I can remember reading, you know, taking off on my own and just completely being absorbed in them were, interestingly, the C.S. Lewis Narnia books. And, um, you know, here am I. That I would have been about six or seven when I first essayed one of those, so I was quite young for it. But here am I, 66, and I'm still reading the same books and thoroughly enjoying them, and they still have more to give, you know. So, so that was... Um, 
I, I was exposed to, to really good literature from a very early age. My parents didn't believe in graded readers or anything like that, or limited vocabularies. And in fact, to get me to sleep or just to kind of comfort me with the sound of their voices, even when I was very young, when I was, you know, an infant still, they read me poetry in my cradle. So even when I came later to read Tennyson or Milton, or, there was probably some deep, almost, you know, natal echo of them somewhere deep in my soul. They They came with a kind of glad familiarity. Oh, that's wonderful. But I mean, of all the reading, I mean, in terms of prose, I would suppose Lewis and Tolkien are great favourites of mine, and I've written about them to some degree. But also in terms of poetry, um, I mean, the first poet I sort of fell in love with as a, as a late teen, as somebody who could really get hold of it, was Keats. So I was very deeply into the romantics, Keats and Shelley. Iron. Then I kind of went behind them to, to Wordsworth and Coleridge. I subsequently wrote quite a big book on Coleridge. But I also loved what, what are called the metaphysical poets, so um, particularly John Donne and, and George Herbert. But um, as you can imagine from all of that, these are all masters of the craft of making verse. They have beautiful meter and delicate rhyme schemes. I have to say that sort of 20th century verse that seemed to be uh, without either rhyme or meter or reason for that matter um, didn't do anything for me so insofar as I've established any kind of a reputation as a poet now it's to do with recovering and reinventing or repurposing these older verse forms to speak with a contemporary voice but still to have that beautiful music the sound of the, the words the rhythm and the rhyme of them that's very important to me is maybe part of your motivation behind that not just the the restoration for for itself, for its own sake, but maybe to help correct the ship in some fashion. Do you think, as mm. a as a society, we've gotten too casual, too informal, that we need some of that brought back into the pictures to restore the beauty of yeah. language? Is that part of your motivation as well? Oh, absolutely. The beauty is really important to me. I think. Beauty is just an important thing that's been kind of gradually erased from our lives. And um, particularly when you're writing poetry at some depth and poetry which, say, expresses grief or lament, people think to do that you have to write somehow broken or jagged verse. That's not true. I think the greater the weight of grief the line of poetry or music is asked to bear, the more beautiful the line itself should be. I mean, it's the beauty that helps us bear with the grief, I think. Um, I also agree with you about a general comment on society. I mean, if you look at the at the the kind of phrases that are used to praise new art in sort of high-end circles, it's always about pushing the envelope or breaking the boundary or cutting the edge or something. It's kind of destructive. It's kind of impatient of form. Whereas, you know, there are certain things that work very beautifully by form. And I think paradoxically, form gives freedom. You can sometimes say more with a sonnet than you can with a kind of long splurgy thing. And I think that's to do with an even bigger problem in our society. I think we've, we've it's as though we're stuck in a kind of permanent agonized adolescence where we don't want any rules. We always want to do exactly what we as individuals want to do without consideration for either what's possible or what's good for all of us together taken as a society. Whereas I like the idea of, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a person of faith. I believe in God and I believe that God has made me to be 
a particular individual with a certain kind of lifespan and I'm a man, you know, rather than a woman, all of that. And that's that's the given form that I have. Now, what I try to do is make the poem of my life within that form as excellently as I can. But I don't want to keep breaking that form. I think that's the particular form that I was given. You know, I happen to be human and I'm not an, an eagle. It would have been interesting to be an eagle. I mean, in my, in poetry, I can become an eagle. I can, you know, as a certain songwriter right. said, fly right. like an eagle in my imagination. But I am still a flesh and blood human being. And I don't like the kind of technology that now seems to think we can transcend all that. So I believe that there is freedom to be found in form, which is a quite, at the present moment, a sort of hyper-postmodernism. That's quite a countercultural thing to think. But I actually think we all need to start thinking it soon, or we may end up breaking our own civilization. But because because limit and freedom are intimately related, if you produce pursue freedom and freedom alone alone and only personally for you for its own sake, you end up with something so corrosive and destructive that it even destroys the freedom you're trying to exercise in the first place. I agree. I think we do as humans we do better when we know where the lines are. Uh, as as we color as as young children yeah well, it's like a football game you can enjoy a football game so there are no rules you know it's the rules that make for the excellence of the play yes it's what actually forms the competitive element of it it's just really interesting i think that even developmentally as children who have a strong sense of boundaries know where the lines are so to speak those are the ones that thrive but if you have no restrictions no no rules so to speak then those are the ones that struggle the most yeah and it feels a bit odd as a parent to say no but actually you're enabling that child by learning their limitations you're giving them a gift anyway these that's a kind of old wisdom that seems to be lost but i'll tell you an interesting thing since you're very much in your podcast is very much about music and people coming to the musical stage when I was in my mid-teens and puzzled as to where all the good poetry had gone, why was nobody writing like Byron, you know, beautiful, rhymed you know, stanzas? Why was there all this kind of post-Elliot? And then, of course, I bought a record by Bob Dylan and then another record by Leonard Cohen, and I got my answer. Curious enough, just at the point where the high-end literary poets were abandoning form and beauty, it was being rediscovered in the, in the oral art form, the vocal art form of song, and I think we've been blessed to live in a generation of superb songwriters. And those songwriters have just got the same kind of skills and write in the same kinds of stanza forms often. I remember at one point, an extraordinary thing, one of the late Leonard Cohen albums where it's kind of a bit of synthesizer music in the background and he's just almost speaking the song in a deep, gruff voice. He did, you know, he started a song that says, so we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night, though the heart be still as loving and the moon be still as bright. And for a minute, I thought it was like a new Leonard Cohen song. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute, that's Byron. But the fact that I thought it was Leonard Cohen before I recognized that he was, in fact, reciting a famous Byron lyric showed me how good I think Leonard Cohen is, that I could have mistaken him for Byron for a moment. You're right. I have always playfully thought I was born a decade too late. I was born in 1970, but I love the music from the 60s. For that reason, one, it's wonderfully melodic. But if you look at the writers, and one, one I would add to that that uh, brief list that you put is is Paul Simon. I find him to be an incredible oh, lyricist, a bit of an Anglophile himself. He, like Dylan, has carried on being brilliant right right into his you know current years. He's as good a songwriter now as ever he was. 
which is very rare. In fact, I, I have said this on multiple occasions that amongst those three were making great music well past beyond what most would. People usually, writers are usually hot, quote unquote, for a period of time or for a sound of movement in music. But it's the rare, the rare composer that can stay relevant, so to speak, yeah, for decades. And all, and I think you, we've touched on somebody, those that definitely have. Yeah, I was. I've been listening, re-listening to some of that early Simon and Garfunkel stuff. You know, Sounds of Silence, and um, for Emily, wherever I find her, and that is pure. Romantic. That is, you know, that could easily have been written by Keats or Shelley for Emily, wherever I may find it, easily. Well, and it's interesting that, you know, Paul Simon had such a great love for England. A lot of that was was written while walking through the streets of small English towns. And yeah. um, so it's no wonder that it's wildly po- poetic, very beautifully yeah. written. Funny enough, because I find myself on the road myself quite a bit and I travel... And I travel more often to the States than I should. I'm about to go off in December to, to New York, and I think that's going to be my ninth trip this year, which is about seven too many. Oh, wow. But uh, I often find myself <laughs> having having Paul Simon's song, Homeward Bound, going through my head. Yes. And for me, it is literally true, a poet and a one-man band, you know, because sometimes I'm playing the guitar and singing at these gigs as well as poetry, although it's mainly poetry. That's interesting you say that I was just up to the wee hours of this morning editing my next episode with uh, Carol Kay and she fact in fact plays bass guitar on on Homeward Bound so anyway, I was just listening oh, to that's kind of what a thing my goodness she plays uh, bass guitar on Scarborough Fair which is obviously there's a, a traditional element to that but one of my favorite Simon and Garfunkel songs so what the audience doesn't have the pleasure of seeing because this is audio only is that you're lighting up a pipe now, so I'm so curious. Let's say it's a it's a stormy evening where you are. You've got a fire in the fireplace, and you want to sit down and do some reading. If, if you were going to pick a book, a pipe, and a tobacco, what would your choice be for such an evening? Well, it depend on how how long I felt I had to sit down. Time was no issue. You had boundless time. Well. For the book, if I wanted prose, I'd probably pick up The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings and just go to a favourite place. Because I know the books so well, I've read them so often that I can say, oh, this is the time for Lothlorien, or this is the time for when um, The Hobbits are in Bayon's house in The Hobbit. Or I, I like these distinct locations, you know. Um, I feel, and Rivendell, of course, you know, the last homely house. So that I might just go to one of those places. If it's poetry, yeah. I'll often take, I take, I love, if I'm reading it shortly, to read the poets who've got the ear for the sound of English. So I'll always go back to Keats. Mm. But I've been rereading a lot of Tennyson. At the moment, I'm in the course of writing some of my own ballad form Arthurian poems. That's my big project at the moment, is to try and retell the stories of the Holy Grail in poetic form. I think it's about time it was done again. Wow. Um so I often read other poets writing about the same thing just to get a sense of the, the heritage that I have and the conversation into which I'm setting. I could endlessly read and reread, for example, the early Arthurian poem by Tennyson, The Lady of Shalott, 
which if you like rhyme, if you like the sheer pleasure of the sound of the, the you know, as Dylan calls it, the, the vague traces of skipping reels of rhyme, then Tennyson's Lady of Shalott, you know, doesn't get better. You know that uh, on either side the river lie long fields of barley and of rye that clothe the wold and meet the sky and through the field the road runs by to many towered Camelot. And up and down the people go, gazing where the lilies blow, round an island there below, uh, the island of Shalott. You know, it's just wonderful. And um, he uses all these half rhymes as well. You know, the willows whiten, aspens quiver, little breezes dusk and shiver through the wave that runs forever round the island in the river, the island of Shalott. I could just go, I could read that, you know, all evening. So that would be the books for the pipe. It would be one of my trusty Petersons. The one I'm smoking right now mm -hmm. is a, a little Peterson silver spigot. It's just the point where the mouthpiece and the bowl join, the, the stem and the bowl join that's silver. It's a, it's, a, it's a briar pipe, but it's very sweet. And um, yeah, tobacco in the evening when I will probably also at some point be, um, you know, needing not to sort of... Uh, put my wife off by too heavy a tobacco thing. I smoke a lighter tobacco in the evening, so I might smoke a, a black cherry Cavendish or an aromatic, but I'll smoke the sort of yes. stonkier English blends in the morning. That's very considerate of you. I, yes, they do have, uh, they, they carry very differently within the room for the for the non-smokers, so that's that's a, a very considerate action on, on your part there. That sounds wonderful. And you talked about your love for Tolkien. What is it that you find about Tolkien that makes him such a unique author? That's, I realize that's such a, a broad question, but I find myself immeasurably drawn to him as, as well. And for you, what is it that you find in his approach to writing, his word selection, the stories he tells, the way he tells them, what is it about him that, that you find yourself drawn to? Well, I think what makes him such a good writer in the first place is that he loves language and he knows language from the inside out. He was a historian of language. He deeply knows not only the English language, but all of the deeper roots of the English language. So he knows Icelandic and Anglo-Saxon and Old High German. He's got a very strong sense of the history of words. He was a contributor to the Oxford English Dictionary, which is um, is interested in, in the, the, the history of language and the etymology and in how certain words have grown. And so he, he loves and cherishes words. I mean, in some respects, the language itself in which the books are written is as much the hero of the story as the as the books. So that's, you know, the care he takes with place names. It's difficult to realise how good it is. I mean, there have been so many sort of imitations of talking, which by people who don't know language and who just produce vaguely talking-esque sounding names, but they haven't, you know. But Rivendell, obviously, it's a beautiful word, but you can see that it, it means a, a dell or a valley which has been, been riven open, and, and that's exactly right. what it should be. But of course, the famous thing about Tolkien is that he loves language so much that he's invented a couple of extra languages, the two different forms of Elvish, 
which he kind of had going, we now know from his notebooks before. And he almost wanted to write a story in which he could imagine a world in which those languages would be spoken as much as it was, you know, that he just wanted to tell a story. So I think that's the first feature. I think the second is that he has a very deep understanding of enchantment in its best sense. That is to say, the power of language to create a world and to magically take you deep into it. And he serves that enchantment. I mean, his his elves are the masters of that enchantment really very well in that he, to use his own phrase, sub-creation, he believed that it, that we who are made in God's image have something like, obviously it's only, a for, uh, it's only a smaller and finite version of what, God can create ex nihilo out of nothing, but we can create out of the things which God has given us. And one of the things he's given us is language and imagination, and we can bring these two things together. But he regarded these acts, and he used the term sub-creation, and to describe the worlds he created, he called them secondary worlds, which is very modest. Though I think he had a hope that God might even turn our secondary worlds into something more real at the end of things if he wanted to. That's the purpose of his story, Leaf by Niggle. So he took an immense care over the creation of these sub-creations, the creation of these, to make them extraordinarily consistent. And one of the things that gives the consistency of reality, which he was looking for for his books, is history. Part of the, the very substance of who we are and how we become ourselves is that we have a long backstory. Yours a particular one in America, but yours one eventually spring, springs out from a like a branch from our one in the British Isles. Right. And our one goes very, very deep past the Norman Conquest, deep into roots of Anglo-Saxon, Nordic, and eventually Celtic things, all of which are languages that, that Tolkien has mastered. So when he comes to create Middle-earth, Almost before he gives it any contemporary events that he's going to tell you in his story, he gives it a long history, and he knows that history. And even though most of it doesn't come into the foreground, and we've now got volumes and volumes of it, he had it all in his mind, so that his characters aren't thin. They've all got a rich hinterland, and they can catch... You know, you're sitting by the fire, you know, in the wilds on the still-not-yet-in-Rivendell, you know, with the riders on your trail. You're sitting there with Strider who's only, you know, you don't really realise and you know that Strider is in fact the king who will return. You don't know any of that yet. But Strider can right. sit and suddenly tell you the story of, of Baron and Luthien. And it's beautiful at that moment. Now, later, when you come to understand the entire legendarium, you realise how poignant and significant that is because the story of Aragorn and Arwen is itself a descendant of and, and a reference to the story of Baron and Luthien. And their meaning of their love is partly informed by the meaning of the love of Baron and Luthien. But you don't know that when you're sitting on Weathertop and he tells, starts singing this little song. But you, the reader, have this sense of a vast hinterland and past which is giving substance and beauty and, if you like, depth and resonance to the story he's actually telling you now. And I don't know any, and I don't think anybody else does quite as well as he does. I would agree. Do you think that comes from, you know, people talk about character development, and it seems to me not so much to be the goal of Tolkien, to develop the character, but to develop the history, to develop the land, to develop the language and the stories that helped form that character as opposed to forming a character. Do you think I have that right? Yeah, well, I think he does that as opposed to describing a character. You learn more about Strider Aragorn's character by the way he reverently tells the story of Baron and Luthien than you would do if 
He'd written some crummy little sentence like, Strider liked his heritage or something <laughs> stupid like that, you know. You see right. him doing it. Yeah. He's very much a show-not-tell kind of kind of writer. Though I think you do, he does develop the characters very deeply for you, and they develop through the action. You know, you see, in a sense, Merry and Pippin, when they're at the beginning of the thing, are just kind of light relief, really, and kind of comedy, and that was rather played up in the films. But in the stories, they each have their own serious adventures, and they grow up and they mature through that. And, of course, we see the astonishing development, really, of Sam Gamgee. I mean, Sam Gamgee, mm-hmm. as the sort of faithful servant... I mean, a lot of people say that the character, the relationship between Frodo and Sam is very similar. This comes out of Tolkien's experience in the Great War. It was the experience... is the, 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 the young officer and what was called his Batman, who was usually a, an agrarian or working-class person, a private or... But who who's the kind of attendant and sidekick of the of the the young officer and there probably was something of that there's probably also something of his reading of dickens the relationship between pickwick and sam weller uh, is also quite similar but what you see of course over the course of the thing is the development of sam and the strength and depth and courage and spirit of service in sam Almost for some people, Sam is the hero of the story. I mean, you know, it's extraordinary. So that's Mm -hmm. remarkable. The other thing I think that he does splendidly is in the kind of larger architecture of the of the whole of the Lord of the Rings, and a lot of that, a lot of that understanding of character, and also, in fact, teaching of virtue and the difference between virtue and vice and the nature of evil, is that he pairs. He there are characters whom you can see. In a sort of binary, and you can see one of them being, as it were, the good version of something, and the other having been the good version, declining away from it. So it's obvious that Gandalf and Saruman are like that. And the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman on the Tower of Orthanc, where, you know, Gandalf, Saruman wants to break the white, you know, into many guys, and Gandalf says, he who breaks a thing to find out what it's made of has left the path of wisdom. They're different attitudes to their wizardly vocation and power. You learn what a whole deal, deal about the nature of goodness just in that conversation. And, of course, the same goes, of course, there's a sense in which the two contenders for the actual king and ruler of Middle-earth are Sauron and Aragorn. And again, you know, Aragorn, the one who walks alongside all the people that he will rule and comes to know them all individually, as opposed to this person who wants to rule, you know. So you can see that. You can even see it in lesser roles. You can see the contrast between Boromir and Faramir is like that, or the contrast between Theoden and Denethor. There's a series, and of course, most powerfully, in a sense, really going into the depth of psychology. In a curious way, you see Frodo and Gollum, who do have this deep kinship, and you see one side something going well and something going wrong right just i mean it's uh, that that number of beautifully architecturally worked out pairings and symmetries that can't be a mistake or an accident or a or a or a, a mere coincidence that's that's deliberate artistry i don't know if you've read this as well but i have heard that tolkien did consider samwise to be the hero of the story in your analysis would you would you agree with that? Would you do you see him as kind of the the key hero to it all? He's a very important figure. I don't think there is actually a single hero to the story. I also think Tolkien would be the first to say that the author's opinion is only one opinion among many. If it's a great mythopoeic story, as he would say, the story has more meanings than the author knows. 
as he himself discovered when, after the problem of atomic weapons and the danger of, you know, using this destructive power, everybody, because it so happened right. that The Lord of the Rings was published after Hiroshima, people assumed that the ring was a symbol of atomic weaponry. And he had to point out that he, right. that bit of the plot had been constructed in his mind long before there was any talk of atomic weaponry. But it was such a true story, it was bound to pick up new things. Yes, I've seen that, that he said that, and I I understand that. I think there's a perfectly good reading of it that way. But I think the real hero, if, it, if you like, is a kind of, uh, to me, certainly in our age, I mean, I think the great lesson of the story... I mean, it's very easy to use and to abuse or even to sneer at that buzzword, diversity. And sometimes people want to have diversity on a conference platform, not because they're really interested in diversity, but just because they want to tick the box, you know. But if you think about real diversity, if you want, what it really is to love and look after one another in and with and through and acknowledging our differences, then the fellowship of the ring with all these different, not just different races, but if you like, different kinds altogether, dwarves and men and elves, you know, and hobbits, all, and, it, and a wizard, all working together. And the distinctive virtues of each of them complementing that of the other. I think that's, the hero for me is the, actually the fellowship, the whole fellowship, rather than a single individual. You know, if you consider the fact that there are enemies amongst the, the fellowship, so to speak, in terms of the, the broader people's discussion. You know, you have elves and you have dwarves who there is a rich history of, of mm. their uh, lack of love for one another. Oh, yes, exactly. And that's why talking goes out. He zooms in and makes a particular thing out of the friendship of Legolas and Gimli. And he tells us, of course, not in the film, he tells us that because Legolas said that for the sake of his friendship, he would go through the mines of Moria um, with Gimli. Gimli promises, and he will go and see Gimli's kingdom. Gimli promises to go to Fanghorn Forest with Legolas. And of course, the really magnificent, oh, it brings tears to your eyes, is when, you know, Gimli, who carries all the traditional prejudices against elves, you know, fully, when he sees Galadriel and, you know, says that her beauty surpasses all the gold in all the mines of the world. And when he can have any gift, wow. he asks for her hair, for a strand of her hair to set an imperishable crystal. That shows, you know, he himself has been delivered from a, if you like, a besetting sin of the dwarves, which is greed for gold. But, but he has this courtesy, and she compliments him for his courtesy, which is something that the elves were supposed to be better at. So, you know, that's a wonderful moment of exchange. That reminds me, that line reminds me a little bit of a poem, Summon Bonham, by Robert Browning. Oh, yes. And it's a very short verse. I'll, I'll read it for you. It's Summon Bonham. It says, All the breath in the bloom of the year in the bag of one bee, all the wonder and wealth of the mine in the heart of one gem, in the core of one pearl, all the shade and shine of the sea, breath and bloom shade and shine wonder wealth how far above them truth brighter than the gem trust that's purer than pearl brightest truth purest trust in the universe all were for me in the kiss of one girl oh it's brilliant Isn't that beautiful it's a great and of course verse. lovely that latin title summum bonum the sum of all sum of good was one of the 
one of the classical definitions of God. He was the summum bonum, the sum of all good. Yeah. Oh, Browning's Browning's. You can, you can hear you can hear the the feel he has for the sound of English just in the alliterations of breath and bloom and the lovely dis description of all the sheens of the world, sheen and shine. You know, that's very good. When you think of the writing of Tolkien, obviously, and I've watched videos of you reading some verse from The Hobbits or from the Lord of the Rings books, is there a, a favorite spot that you would be interested in sharing with us that maybe is a, is a favorite of yours? Yeah, I could do that. I'm just going to step on the ladder of my library and get the book. <laughs> I think um, the uh, arrival in Lorien is particularly well done, especially the way you, you kind of, the senses are so much enhanced because of course they're, they're blindfolded. But there's a point where they cross over the stream as it were, and they come into uh, the place itself. And uh, Frodo um, describes it as though they'd kind of gone over a bridge out of time. Yeah, uh, it's just, just a couple of paragraphs, but it, I think it opens up the, something for the reader in the most extraordinary way. This is in the chapter Lothlorien. As they spoke thus, the company filed slowly along the paths in the wood, led by Haldir, while the other elf walked behind. They felt the ground beneath their feet smooth and soft, and after a while they walked more freely without fear of hurt or fall. Being deprived of sight, Frodo found his hearing and his other senses sharpened. He could smell the trees and the trodden grass. He could hear many different notes in the rustle of the leaves overhead, the river murmuring away on his right, and the thin, clear voices of birds in the sky. He felt the sun upon his face and hands as they passed through an open glade. As soon as he set foot upon the far bank of Silverlode, a strange feeling had come upon him, and it deepened as he walked on into the nave. It seemed to him that he had stepped over a bridge of time into a corner of the elder days, and was now walking in a world that was no more. In Rivendell there was memory of ancient things. In Lorien, the ancient things still lived on in the waking world. Evil had been seen and heard there, sorrow had been known. The elves feared and distrusted the world outside. Wolves were howling on the woods' borders. But on the land of Lorien, no shadow lay. I, I think that's astonishing writing. And of course, that prepares the reader's mind for everything that comes. You read it with a heightened sense. And I go back to that passage and then read on quite often. If I'm, you know, things are just dire, I can, as it were, mentally go to Lothlorien. Or spiritually, I might even say, go to Lothlorien and stay there for a while. And it restores me. What a beautiful passage. And you realize how wonderfully poetic what a what a brilliant brilliant author! Yeah, you notice how he talks through all the senses. He has what it felt like under their feet, what they heard, the feeling of the sunlight on his face. You know, it's wonderful. What a gift! And it, it's so interesting that you know the other author that you quoted as as being so important to you was Lewis, and how interesting that they're both men of the same time were friends and, friends and with one another. 
intimately so, and whose lives were very much, for a period of time, very intertwined with one another, not only from a literary and educational, you know, their careers, but also their faith. Absolutely, yeah. I think Tolkien was instrumental in helping Lewis to come to faith, actually. I think conversations with him were highly significant. Yes, I've I've made a, a long study of them both, and it's always encouraging. So I know you primarily as as a poet. And as I mentioned, I've got a couple of friends, Sam and Sean, that we've kind of gotten into your work collectively together. But there's so much more to you. Does it surprise you a bit that to so many people, you're primarily known as a poet, but there's so much more to your your path, your own journey that as to a lot of people like myself, has yet to be explored. Is it a, a note of interest to you that you were primarily known as a poet today? Well, of all the things I could be known as, that's the one I'd most prefer to be known as. So I'm very glad that the poetry has kind of come to the fore. Um, obviously, just within my own ministry, I'm known as a priest, and that's, of course, equally, if not more, precious to me. Although I regard the the twin, the twin vocations of priesthood and, and poet as mutually intertwined. I try to do my priesthood in a fairly poetic way and I hope that there is a slightly priestly or sacramental element to my poetry but yes there are other things I mean I um I I, mean, I suppose I'm an academic in the sense that I've taught a lot in universities mm-hmm. and I I um, have written academic books and that those things are important to me in this sense in that I feel that just as I think poetry to some degree post Eliot took a wrong turn I think so has academia to some degree. I think it's been kind of browbeaten by the aggressive secularism of our age and stopped teaching some of the things you need to know in order to read literature well, including you obviously need to know the Bible in the King James Version and the Book of Common Prayer. And, you know, you need to know the basic outlines of Christian doctrine if you're going to understand anything written before the late 19th century, really. Um, But students aren't taught that and therefore they have difficulty with the poetry so i i've tried to to make up for that gap and i, I mean i wrote a substantial book about coleridge because coleridge is a great theologian i kind of gave us a christian theology of the imagination but i found all the secular accounts of of, of coleridge had simply airbrushed his faith out of the picture as though they could as though it's some kind of background 19th century religious noise or static that they could just don't we're not interested in that now but it's actually right at the core of his thinking and of his poetry i mean you know one of the great moments in one of his most famous poems in which he's imagining how good it would be for his son to grow up amidst beautiful scenery and in nature he says um you know thou it's in frost at midnight he says thou my child shall wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores beneath the crags of ancient mountains and the clouds which measure mirror in their bulk both mountains and lakes and and then he says so shalt thou see and hear and he doesn't say so shalt thou see and hear some nice scenery or so shalt thou see and hear some geological formations or, you know, uh, meteorological things. He says, so shalt thou see and hear, referring to the whole landscape, so shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, who doth teach himself in all and all things in himself, great universal teacher, he shall mould thy spirit, and by giving, make it ask. 
Now, that's a profound insight, but it's a religious, it's a spiritual insight into the fact that this stuff isn't just a bunch of phenomena. It's like a poem. It's like an utterance. It's telling us something. I mean, and essentially, it's actually a, it's a, it's a biblical insight. It, it, it kind of echoes what goes on in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork, right. not unto night uttereth speech. And I felt all this stuff is just being airbrushed out. People aren't even seeing it, you know. So I've made a certain effort. And then, of course, in my discipline of literary criticism, but also to some degree in theology, I felt there was a loss of confidence in the transcendence and clarity of God's being, perhaps a loss of confidence in all that's revealed of God when he chooses to show us himself in the person and death and life of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus. So I've tried to write some theology, which if you like, returns returns to a deeper orthodoxy, but does so cognizant, you know, of all the things we have to deal with in the modern world. And uh, yeah. as far as literary criticism is concerned, I really felt that, that um, people weren't seeing the spiritual resonance of poetry. So I wrote a book, an academic book called Faith, Hope and Poetry, subtitled Theology and the Poetic Imagination, oh. in order to redress that balance. And I'm happy to say the book is still in print and is is on various syllabuses and syllabi and curricula. So, uh, you know, I have tried to make a difference in the academic world. But if I were to be remembered for anything, I'd want it to be for the poetry. You touch on something that is very important as as we become more a secular society, I've heard that society referred to as a cut flower society, meaning it's a flower that has been removed from its roots and is slowly withering. And because of that detachment from the roots, there's a whole loss of subject matter understanding that cannot fully be expressed. And I think you've touched on that very, very well. There are things that are off limits or even out of reach to the secular society. That, but I tell you who are the kind of Trojan horses who bring it all back in so that it's still there. The very people we've just been talking about, Tolkien and Lewis, because they're both people of faith. They're deeply versed in the strongest and longest and deepest traditions of Western civilization, and particularly, as it happens, of the, the Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic world. And... Um, they're channels through which that stuff is flowing to a much younger generation. But I really hope that the younger generation who know it all through the Jackson films do return to the books because yes. it's the language itself that teaches you something rather than just one director's take on it. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Malcolm Guy. My interview with Malcolm is one of the most wide-ranging and in-depth interviews that he's done to date. It was such a wonderful conversation, I decided to split it into two episodes. In part two, we talk about Malcolm's thoughts about the Lord of the Ring movies, the character Tom Bombadil, and he reads one of his own sonnets, which is really, really cool. We discuss his own approach to writing his love for the American blues. We'll be chatting about the poetry and scripture and the art of listening and much more. So if you love Malcolm's work, I think you're really going to love what lies ahead. Part two will be released on Monday, February 26, 2024. To make sure you get notified when it's released, you can follow or subscribe wherever you're listening. And if you have friends or family who you think would enjoy this conversation, then send them the link. We'll be back for part two in two weeks. And until then, keep your bags packed and join us on our next journey to the stage. And that is a wrap. Mm-hmm.